Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I recently dusted off my old copy of The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Um, I'm curious, how many of you have read that book by Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness? Um, If you weren't able to raise your hand, I would encourage you to put that on your list of books to read this next year. It's a short, simple, easy read in the sense of uh, it's not difficult to understand, but it's really one of the, I think, the finest books that has ever been written in our generation about the sanctification process and how one becomes holy as God is holy. And that's what the book is based on. Um, Verses like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue holiness, for without holiness, uh, no one will see the Lord. And then, of course, 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I think you're all familiar with that phrase. You've heard that phrase, I'm sure, many, many times before. But I was thinking this week, what does that look like practically? We we all know that um, we're supposed to pursue holiness uh, we're to be holy as God is holy, but what does that look like practically in our day-to-day lives as Christians? And my mind went back to a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, which, by the way, um, I don't know uh, where, where you're at in your own walk with the Lord, but it seems to me that I've probably forgotten more things that I've learned over the years uh, that I've maybe learned. I mean, it seems like I, I need to be constantly reminded of things. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Man, that, that's a great principle or that's a great verse. And um, I think that's why Peter said that his ministry, he pretty much summarized his ministry, the Apostle Peter, as one of stirring people up by way of reminder. And that's really my job as a pastor is to be used by God to stir you up by way of reminder. In other words, just to remind you of things you already know. You, you already know this. You already know this passage that we're going to look at this morning. You've read it. Uh, you maybe, maybe even have memorized some of it. We've talked about it many, on many occasions before over the 20 years we've been in existence as a church. But uh, I hope that this morning this will um, stir us up by way of reminder of just what it looks like to be holy as God is holy. And so let me just... Um, read for you uh, this text just to kind of put it in our minds. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. 
Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, I want to pray the same prayer that Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer that you would sanctify us with the truth today. We know your word is truth. And so I pray your spirit would use your word to make us more holy, even as you are holy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in the grocery store last night, and while I was going through the checkout line, the cover of the, of the latest Time magazine uh, caught my attention. Some of you may have seen the, the title on this special edition. It read this, The Power of Habits. Start good ones, break bad ones, change your life. Timely title, because everyone knows, including magazine editors, that this is the time of year when we all start to think about the areas in our lives that need to change, and we begin formulating our New Year's resolutions like no more pie, no more sweets, no more all this junk I've been eating for the last week and a half, right? You're just in that mode where you're just thinking, I got to change, man, something's got to change. And for those of us who are Christians, changing is what being a Christian is all about. And we have an advantage over those who don't know Christ because we have something that they don't have, and that is the indwelling Holy Spirit who helps us change and do more than what the world can do. The world, all they can do is kind of behavior modification. They can kind of change their external behavior, but because of the Spirit, we can experience spiritual transformation, which is a huge difference than just merely behavior modification. And so the process of spiritual transformation or change is what we call sanctification. We've been talking a lot about sanctification in our study of the book of Romans. We're in the sanctification section, Romans 6, 7, and 8. And so maybe that's why sanctification is on my mind these days, just been marinating in that whole topic. But just to remind you this morning what sanctification is, it's the gradual continuous process that every believer, every Christian goes through from the time they get saved until the time they go to heaven, whereby the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to grow and mature and change them into the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, sanctification is becoming more and more set apart from sin unto God. In other words, we sin less and less and become more and more like Jesus, another word for sanctification, is holiness. And the reason why I brought us to, to this text this morning in Ephesians chapter 4 is because I think this is one of the most helpful explanations in the entire Bible of what sanctification looks like practically in our everyday lives as, as believers. And according to this passage, true, lasting change involves two steps, putting off vices and putting on virtues in their place. And the analogy, as we'll see in just a moment, uh, that Paul uses here in Ephesians 4 and also in Colossians 3, which was a sister letter he wrote at the same time, uh, one of the prison epistles, um, the, the analogy he used was that of changing clothes. 
that, that it's like we've got this old, dirty, smelly outfit on and we want to take those clothes off and we put, want to put on a brand new, fresh, clean outfit. That's the sanctification process in, in the mind of Paul. And so being a believer is, isn't just about not doing the wrong things, it's about doing the right things. And so we need to learn how to replace the wrong things with the right things. And unless new ways of living are learned, we'll continue in our old ways of living or they'll eventually reappear in our lives over time. And at the risk of oversimplifying the sanctification process, I think it really all boils down to habits. Breaking habits and making habits. I think that's why that Time magazine caught my attention. The power of habits. We would probably say the power of the Holy Spirit, right, to help us make habits or break habits. Now, we're all familiar with habits, right? Habits are actions, they're attitudes, they're patterns of talking, patterns of thinking, patterns of feeling or responding that through practice have become so ingrained in us that we do them unconsciously or automatically. They're like second nature. All of us have, have habits. There's not, there's not one of us that doesn't have some habits that we've developed in our lives. And, and typically when you think about habits, we, 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 we think about them in a negative light, like we think of bad habits, right? Like I've developed some bad habits and I've got to stop that. I've got to quit it. Well, we need to understand that habits are a gift from God. That God created us with the marvelous capacity to develop a habit. And if we didn't have this ability to develop a habit, we, we, would be, we wouldn't get anything done in life. Because every day would be constantly relearning everything, how to walk. How do I do this again? Or how to eat? How, wh- which utensil do I use? And, and, and um, you know, how to drive? Now, wh- where's the ignition again on this thing? And, you know, wh- where's the gas pedal? And, you know, we'd have to be relearning stuff every day. And, you know, by the time we got out of the house, it'd be time to come back home and have supper. Because we'd be relearning all these things. And so um, you, you just think about your morning routine and how you do things. You just you hear the alarm goes off and boom, you're up and you start doing things automatically and, 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 and um, unconsciously and, or, or what we could call habitually, that we've done certain things so many times they become habits and, and, and we do them literally without even thinking. And so God has wisely and graciously given us the ability to live life in a way that doesn't demand conscious thought about every action or response. I mean, that would be exhausting, wouldn't it? And so it's a great blessing that God has made us this way. But the fact that we're habitual creatures can also work against us at times, can it? Because if we practice certain sins long enough, they become second nature. And before we became Christians, each of us developed a lot of different sinful habit patterns in the way that we act and the way we talk and think and feel and respond. And, and the reason why you're so good at certain sins is because you've done it so many times, it's become second nature. It's developed into a habit. 
And so through regular practice, you have trained yourself, we have trained ourselves to sin. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, Peter talks about the false teachers have their hearts trained in greed. In other words, if you tend to be a greedy person, you've developed the habit of being greedy. You, you've trained yourself to be greedy or fill in the blank, whatever sin you know you struggle with, you've developed the habit of that. Now, the good news is when we repent and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, thankfully, some of these habits stop immediately. They just go away. And I know many of you can testify that there were certain things that you used to do before you were saved. Man, the moment you came to Christ and you were born again and you were transformed and the Spirit of God came in you, I mean, it was like you never did it ever again. But at the same time, there are some sins that have become so ingrained in us that they may take weeks or months, maybe even years to eradicate from our lives. But we must never give, give up hope that, it, that it's possible, that change is possible. Why? Because through the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God, we can retrain ourselves. We can break ungodly habits and replace them with new godly habits. And that's the essence of what Paul was writing about here uh, in his letter to the Ephesians. And again, the context is important here. Um, notice verse 17 of chapter 4. Paul is referring to a believer's walk or how we are to behave, how we're to live. And he says this, I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk or live no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So Paul just described non-Christians, unbelievers. In fact, he was describing the Ephesians and us before we were saved. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So again, Paul is describing here how the Ephesians and all of us who are Christians have been transformed into new creatures in Christ. We've been given a complete spiritual makeover. We've received Christ. We've repented of our old way of life. We've had our minds renewed. We've been recreated in the likeness of God. And yet, we still struggle with some old sinful habits that seem to have this strong hold on us. And we're going to see this as we continue in our study of Romans in a few weeks. Um, in Romans chapter 7, where the most spiritually mature Christian that we may have ever been exposed to, the Apostle Paul himself, admitted that there were still some sins that he struggled with as a believer. It's not like he became a Christian and all of his sin went away. And so that's what Paul goes on to address here in verses 25 to 32. He gets very specific in exhorting the Ephesians and us to stop living like the old Jew. 
Now start living like the new you. Live like who you are in Christ. Don't live like you used to be when you weren't in Christ. Live like you are in Christ. And so he commanded them here to change five specific areas in their lives. I've chosen to call these things exchanges, five exchanges that are representative of the kinds of changes that every Christian must make with the help of the Holy Spirit to show that they are a new creature in Christ. Now, we're familiar with the concept of exchange, especially after Christmas, right? That some of you have been exchanging gifts, right? It wasn't the right size, it wasn't the right color, or you still don't know why they gave that to you in the first place, right? But all you know is you have the receipt and you went, you're, you've, you've already gone back to the source to exchange that. And what does that mean? You, you, you bring something, you know, with you and, and you replace it with something else. And so these are five exchanges that we see here in this text. And, and each of these five exchanges has, has three elements. There's, first of all, what you're to put off. Number two, what you're to put on. And number three, Paul gives a reason why this exchange must take place. And essentially what these are, are five bad, ungodly habits that need to be broken and five good, godly habits that need to replace them. That's what we're going to see in this text. And, and don't Forget that word, representative. These are five exchanges that are representative of the kinds of changes that every Christian must make with the help of the Holy Spirit to show that we are new Christians in Christ. Hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to that at the end. So what are these five exchanges or these five bad ungodly habits that need to be broken and what are the five godly habits that need to replace them? Number one, Telling lies must be replaced or exchanged with telling the truth. Verse 25, therefore, laying aside falsehood. So the old habit to put off is lying or deceiving, which is a characteristic of our old way of life as unbelievers. Back in verse 22, he talks about how we used to be corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And so lying... And deceiving takes many forms. It could be shading the truth. It could be exaggerating. It could be cheating. It could be failing to keep promises. It could be betraying a confidence. It could be flattering someone, saying things about them that you really don't mean. Um, fudging on your income taxes. That's coming up, right? Um, covering up your sin. Uh, rem remaining silent when you have necessary information. Uh, may maybe saying something in such a way to purposely mislead others. Um, speaking half-truths. Okay, so these are all different ways that, that we can lie. But the Bible is very clear about lying. John 8, 44 says, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And then Revelation 21, 8 talks about the types of people uh, who will not go to heaven. And it says all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So what are we to take from those verses? Um, well, I think we 
would all agree that it's possible for Christians to lie at times. We've probably all told a lie or two from time to time. But if lying is the characteristic pattern of your life, then you have reason to question whether or not you're a Christian. Because according to those verses, habitual liars give the indication that their father is the devil and their future is hell. And so Paul says to put off falsehood, lay aside falsehood, and the new habit to put on in its place is to speak truth. And this is a present active imperative, a command, which means we're to do this regularly or habitually. We're to habitually tell the truth. This should be the pattern of our life, to be truth tellers rather than liars. Why? Because unlike Satan, God cannot lie. His word is truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of truth, John 16, 13, that Jesus promised to send. We have embraced the truth and are being conformed to the truth. Notice verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. And then verse 24, he says that we have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, lay aside falsehood and speak truth. So the fact that we've embraced the truth, we're being conformed to the truth, that means our lives as Christians should be characterized by the truth, by truthfulness. Our words should be completely trustworthy. There should never be any reason why anyone should doubt anything we say. Our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And notice the reason he gives. Lay aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for, here's the reason, we are members of one another. And again, Paul loved this analogy of the body, a physical body to describe the church, that that the church, like a human body, the human body is made up of many different parts, different, different members. And it's unthinkable for the members of our human body to lie to one another. The, the eyes don't lie to the brain. The eyes don't see a ball coming to hit you in the face and they tell the brain, oh, it's really not going to hit your face. You don't have to worry about it. No, it it tells the truth. Hey, put your hands up. Duck, do something. Our nerve endings don't send a false message to our brain. We don't put our hand on on something hot and our nerves go, it's really not hot. Just keep your hand there. And you're smelling the smoke, right? Singeing your skin there. No, it's like immediately your nerve endings say, hey, it's hot. There's truth. Our mouths don't deceive the stomach as we're eating something bitter, thinking, oh, this is going to taste really good. I can't wait to, to swallow this. Your body's like, ah, spit it out, right? And so it goes without saying that the members of our body don't lie and they don't hurt one another. Our bodies wouldn't function properly unless all the parts were honest with one another. In the same way, churches can't function properly unless its members speak the truth to one another in love. He recently got done saying that up in verse 15 he says speak the truth in love 
And again, it was in the context of the body. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted and held together by every part, what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So in order for the body to be built up, we need to speak to one another um, truthfully and lovingly. And so the health and the growth of a church depends on the truthfulness of its members. I came across this quote. It said this, A lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. You think about the first sin that was judged by God in the early church. What was it? Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. Moral of that story is you lie, you die, right? And so, again, what does God think about lying and particularly how it affects the body of Christ? And so we see this first exchange, again, representative of the kind of changes that every Christian must make with the help of the Holy Spirit to show that they're new creatures in Christ. Well, let's look at a second exchange here, and that is unrighteous, unresolved anger must be replaced with righteous, resolved anger. Verse 26, we have, first of all, the old habit to put off. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. It's a strange command here. Paul's commanding us to be angry but not to sin. So that must mean it's possible to be angry and not sin. So anger in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. The fact that God gets angry means that anger is not always wrong. Psalm 2.12, do homage to the Son lest he become angry. Psalm 7.11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. So it's okay to be angry as long as we're angry about the same things that God is angry about. Sin, wickedness, evil, injustice, disobedience to his word. But let's face it, most of the things that we get angry about are motivated by our pride or our jealousy or resentment or hatred over things or wrongs done to us personally. And so we let our selfish, unrighteous anger go unresolved for a long time, hours, days, weeks, months, even years. And I believe that unrighteous anger that's not been properly resolved has ruined more relationships, more marriages, more families, more churches than anything else. Because when a couple or a brother or sister or a mom and a child or a dad and a kid or members of a church fail to keep short accounts with one another, then anger begins to fester for days, again, for weeks, maybe even years, and and, and a root of bitterness grows in their hearts toward one another, which hinders and destroys that relationship. And that's why he says here, be angry and yet do not sin. And here it is, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, you got to the end of the day to make things right. You need to resolve that situation, whatever it is, that made you angry before the day is over. Is over. And we've said this before, basic principle of life, never go to bed mad at anyone.
need to work that out, whatever it is, or at least resolve that, okay, I can't get to that person right now, or I can't, for whatever reason, resolve that thing, you know, before midnight tonight, <laughs> I'm making a commitment to the Lord that first thing I'm going to do tomorrow morning is I'm going to make a phone call, or I'm going to send a text or an email, or I'm going to go stop by and get some FaceTime with that person, because I don't want to let the sun go down on my anger again. And unfortunately, we let the sun go down on our anger many, many times, and it creates all sorts of unresolved conflict. But notice the put on here. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. In other words, there's a way to be angry without sinning. This is righteous anger. You say, how do I know if my anger is righteous or unrighteous? Well, ask yourself, what are you angry about? What made you mad? Was it a sin against God or was it a sin against you? Are you upset because God didn't get what he wanted or because you didn't get what you wanted? Was God offended or were you offended? We have examples of legitimate anger. Jesus got mad at hypocrisy. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, the, he knew the Pharisees were waiting to see if he would heal a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath day. And it, the Bible says it hacked them off. <laughs> it made Jesus mad that these guys were just sitting there with their critical, self-righteous, judgmental spirit. Here was a guy who needed help and they didn't care about that guy all they wanted to try to trap Jesus and so he invited the guy up and and it says in anger he healed the guy and of course we know when Jesus was angry when he saw the his father's temple turn into a marketplace and he made a whip and he drove out uh, drove out all the money changers Paul uh, got mad about the incest being tolerated within the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5. He confronted that situation. Um, he got mad at the false teachers in the Ephesian church, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. Think about other men in church history. Martin Luther got mad at the heresy in the Catholic church in his day, and he did something about it. William Wilberforce got angry at slavery. And he labored for many years to have it outlawed. I think the world could use a lot more righteous indignation. I think most of us are, are far too tolerant and apathetic about sin and, and compromise. And so we need to learn how to be angry about the right kinds of things. And respond in Christ-like ways, Paul-like ways. Um, in other words, being angry but not sinning. And notice the reason he, he gives here. Why, why is this so important that we put off sinful anger and learn how to channel righteous anger? He says, verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Don't let Satan set up a, a base of operations. Don't give Satan a beachhead or a foothold in your life because he'll launch all sorts of attacks on your heart and your mind, if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. And so when we let sinful anger go unresolved, we are deliberately helping Satan defeat us. We make it easier for him to destroy our lives. 
And so we need to make sure we put off that sinful anger and put on righteous anger, if you will, in its place. Well, there's a third exchange, again, representative of the kinds of changes that every Christian should make with the help of the Holy Spirit. We should exchange stealing with sharing. Notice verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. And so obviously the, the, the old habit to put off is to steal. Steal no longer, he says. To stop taking what is not rightfully yours. And again, like lying, stealing takes many forms. You might think, well, I'm not a thief. I haven't stolen anything. I've never shoplifted. Well, have you paid off your debts that you owe to people? Do you ever steal your employer's time by coming to work late or leaving early or doing things during work hours that are unrelated to your job? How about plagiarism? It's kind of hard in these days when you can copy and paste anything from anywhere and just kind of act like it's yours. Falsifying expense reports, some of you businessmen that have to give an account every week uh, from your trip or maybe overcharging for your products or services, not paying employees a fair wage, asking for a water cup at a restaurant and filling it with soda. I mean, come on, those are some things that some people justify in their minds as, as, as okay. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says, Thieves shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, if you are a habitual thief, if stealing characterizes your life, that's an indication that you're not a Christian and you're on your way to hell. That's what it means when he says, doing this, you'll not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's not that you stole something one time when you were, you know, eight years old, and that means you're going to hell. Uh, or you told a lie once. That means you're going to hell. And that's not what I was talking about. It's like this is talking about the characteristic pattern of your life, which demonstrates whether or not you're saved. By the fruit, right, you'll know who's saved and who's not. So what's the, the opposite, if you will, of stealing? Well, it's working. Notice he says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor And the, the word there for work literally means to grow weary and sweat. This is talking about hard manual labor. Performing with his own hands what is good. Instead of lazily, selfishly taking what others have worked or earned... You need to develop the habit of working hard to acquire the things that you need so you don't have to steal them from others. And Paul was a great example of this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul talks about his work ethic here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us, 
For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. What a great example Paul was. And that's a word to all of us who might be given to laziness or not being willing to go to work. But we're living off somebody else or mooching off the system or something when we have the ability to work. Granted, there's some people that don't have the ability to work for some reason, but if you have the ability to work then you should work. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so we need to stop stealing and start working. And notice the reason. This is interesting. I love this. Performing with his own hands what is good, so that, here's the reason, he will have something to share with one who has need. This is the goal of work. It's really not just, hey, stop stealing, start working. It's really stop stealing and start working so that you can share with others. In other words, what Paul is advocating here is that we shouldn't just work to earn a living for ourselves and our family, but also to have enough left over so that we can help others who may be less fortunate than we are. I mean, this is a, this is a radical, revolutionary concept of work. Why? Because most people, I think, view work as a means to provide for their needs and the needs of their family, period. And so as their income in, increases, their standard of living increases, and they have you know, a bigger house, a nicer car, a newer boat, or better vacation. That's just kind of the way, at least the American culture tends to go. But as those of us who've been transformed by Christ, we should choose a standard of living that allows us not only to meet our own needs, but also the needs of others. In other words, if you've chosen a standard of living where you're just eking it out every month and it's all you got and, and there's nothing to left for anybody else, then may, maybe um, you've chosen too high a standard of living. See, unbelievers work so they can get, whereas believers work so that we can give. And so giving becomes the motive for getting. It's, again, it's the opposite of stealing, is sharing giving back to people rather than taking from them. Well, there's a fourth exchange that Paul mentions here that corrupt speech needs to be exchanged with constructive speech. Corrupt speech needs to be exchanged with constructive speech. 
verse 29. He starts off with the old habit to put off. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That word unwholesome literally means rotten. Let no rotten word. I mean, the idea of rotten, rotten fruit, rotten fish, maggots and all. You, you've all seen something rotting in our trash can or, or, or our, you know, one of our drawers in our refrigerator. It's nasty, right? The idea here is something that's rancid, something that's putrid, something that's foul, something that's disgusting. So what are we talking about? We're talking about off-color jokes and sexual innuendos and profanity and using the Lord's name in vain and grumbling and complaining and murmuring and gossiping and slandering and maybe just idle, worthless words, I think all these fall under the category of unwholesome words. Notice in the next chapter, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Paul says specifically, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Whenever I read that verse, I... I'm transported back into the locker room in high school. <laughs> that pretty much describes what was going on in the locker room when we were getting ready for PE class or, you know, the game, getting suited up. That, that's the kind of stuff that was happening. And if these are the kinds of things that spew out of your mouth, again, that means that's the kind of stuff that's in your heart. Matthew 12, 34, our mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And so... We're to put off that old habit of unwholesome speech and in its place, the new habit to put on, he says, is this, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. In other words, the only thing that should come out of our mouths are things that build up people rather than tear down people. You say, how do I determine whether or not what, what I have to say is constructive or not? I know it's, it's, it's not corrupt, per se, but is it constructive? Well, ask yourself a few questions. Number one, is it helpful? Will this be helpful for me to say what I'm about to say? Number two, is it necessary? Is it really necessary? Does it need to be said? And then thirdly, is it gracious? Is it gracious? Is it how you would want to be spoken to? Is it how you would want to be spoken about? Is it gracious? Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace or gracious, seasoned as it were with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. You've heard me say it before and I'll make an exception because we taught our kids here uh, you know, in, in our house growing up, never to say the word shut up. But I think it's appropriate in this case, what Paul was saying, if it doesn't build up, then shut up. If it doesn't build up, then shut up. Stop talking. Why? Notice the reason. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? It means to sadden him or cause him pain or grief. And I think gossip and slander and 
grumbling and complaining and off-color jokes and profanity and using the Lord's name in vain, all those things grieve the Holy Spirit. And why would we want to do anything to cause the Holy Spirit grief and sorrow after, he's, after all he's done for us and continues to do for us? Notice it says, who has sealed or by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, the moment we, were, we, we turn from our sins and trust Christ, we are instantly baptized and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that we belong to him. And that our salvation is secure until Jesus returns for us. Paul says that back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. How the Spirit of God is like the down payment. The engagement ring, if you will, that he's coming back to, to marry us. And so this should make us want to please the Holy Spirit, not pain the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the fifth exchange here, again, that's representative of the kinds of changes that every Christian should make with the help of the Holy Spirit to show, to show demonstrate that they're new creatures in Christ, is, is meanness needs to be exchanged with kindness, or bitterness needs to be exchanged with forgiveness. Verse 31, Paul listed an escalating series of six relational sins. One, it's just kind of the one leads to the next. So it's almost like they spiral down, getting worse and worse and worse, but they're all connected. They all build on one another. It's like compounding interest here. It's compounding sin. And, and, and these are all the old habits to put off. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So he just kind of throws a whole grocery list at us of sins and says, put these things off. Quit being bitter, which is that smoldering resentment that results from an unwillingness to forgive. Wrath, quit, quit being wrathful. This is the, the temporary outburst of, of fury or rage. This is when you have a kind of a temper tantrum, you, you blow it, you blow up. And then there's anger, which is more the, the settled, deep-seated anger that just is there. And then there's clamor, where this, you, you publicly vent this bitterness, this wrath, this anger that's built up inside of you. You yell and you shout and you, you bicker and you fight. Sadly, that describes some homes, right? Some marriages, some family interactions. And then there's slander, which is, that's not fighting with your fists, that's fighting with your words, fighting with your mouths, where you speak evil of someone with the intent of making them look bad. To, you want to ruin their reputation. You want other, other people to think bad about them or to think the worst about them. And then there's malice. This is the climax of this list of sins here, which is just you wish evil on that person that maybe you started, just there was a little root of bitterness in your heart towards them and, and you didn't keep that in check. You didn't put that off. And next thing you know, you're thinking bad thoughts about them. You're wanting bad things to happen to them. It's just you, you're malicious. And again, all these sins end up destroying relationships. And, and that's why Paul said to get rid of them. And what is the opposite of these? What, what, what should we put on in their place? And so Paul went on to list three virtues to replace these six vices. 
And these three virtues build and maintain relationships. And these are, these are the exact opposite of the sins in verse 31. First of all, he says to be, what, verse 32, be kind to one another. In other words, you have an unselfish concern for the welfare of others. You go out of your way to help other people, even if it requires great sacrifice on your part. You're kind. It's the opposite, opposite of being mean. You're kind. And then notice he says, tender-hearted. In other words, you're compassionate, you're sympathetic, you're, you're empathetic towards others. You, you are willing to bear their burdens. You're, you're tender-hearted. In other words, you're not hard-hearted towards them. And then maybe the most important one here, he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, here it is, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So there needs to be a readiness to, to pardon sins and offenses that are committed against us. We need to overlook personal wrongs done to us, either intentionally or even unintentionally. In other words, we shouldn't harbor any desire for revenge or retaliation. We should freely forgive others' faults and failings. I think it's good for us to be reminded this morning that, that forgiveness is a promise. That when you tell someone that you forgive them, you are promising three things. First of all, you're promising to never bring it up to them again. Secondly, you're promising to never bring it up to anyone else again. And number three, you promise to never bring it up in your own mind again. In other words, you, you promise you're not going to hold it against them. And I think, sadly, we settle for the world's cop-out or the world's excuse uh, or counterfeit for forgiveness. It's called apologizing. I think that's the world's lame substitute for forgiveness. Because why? When you apologize, you're simply telling someone how you feel. Like, oh, I apologize. Or, or I'm sorry. Well, you, you've just told them how you feel. You haven't asked them to do anything, so they really can't do anything. And so consequently, it doesn't achieve the same results as when you say, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? Now you've not only just told them how you feel, and you are sorry, but now would you forgive me? Would you promise to not bring this up again? Would you promise to, to not bring this up to anyone else again, or to let your mind dwell on this again? There's a transaction that takes place. And so seeking forgiveness and granting forgiveness, I think, is the only way to maintain relationships between imperfect people. But if you just go around through life saying, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry. Well, a bunch of people are going to start thinking, you are sorry <laughs> for the way you treat them. Instead of owning it and saying, hey, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? And notice the reason here. This is important. Again, you've heard this before, but it's good to be stirred up by way of reminder. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, forgive others like God has forgiven you. The next verse, verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God. How does God forgive us? Even while we're still sinning in His mercy, in His grace, 
God forgave us even though we didn't deserve it. And since he has been so kind and tenderhearted towards us, he expects us to be kind and tenderhearted toward others. And since he has forgiven us so graciously and generously for the sins we've committed against him, he expects us to graciously and generously forgive other people for the sins they commit against us. And when we do that, we show that we have tasted the kindness of God ourselves. 1 Peter 2.3, and we prove that we are one of his forgiven children. Listen, if you have a hard time forgiving other people, you should question whether or not you've been forgiven. Are you really a child of God who's experienced the kindness of God in your life? Because if you have, then you should understand forgiveness better than anyone. There's nothing more unchristian than an unforgiving spirit. And if you refuse to forgive others, then you clearly show that you've not been forgiven yourself. If you take issue with that, read Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, the story of the unforgiving slave and what Jesus said about the slave that was forgiven a little bit or, or excuse me, he was, he was forgiven a lot, and then he wouldn't forgive a little bit. What God thought of that. And so again, here we have five exchanges that are, again, note the word, representative of the kinds of changes that every Christian must make with the hope of the Holy Spirit to show that we're a new creature in Christ. Now, as we've gone through these five exchanges... You may have thought, well, you know, I honestly, um, by, by the grace of God, I, I, I habitually tell the truth and I, I, I work hard at resolving conflict before the day ends and, you know, I'm not in the habit of stealing. I, I work hard and I'm always looking for opportunities to give and to share and, you know, I, I, and I'm, God's been gracious in that he kind of helped me learn how to control my tongue and, and uh, sure, I, I slip from time to time, but generally speaking, I think the Lord is honored, he's Spirit's not grieved, and you know I'm working on dealing with the bitterness and anger in my heart, and, and, and I'm striving to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving others just the way God has forgiven me, and I, I really don't struggle with forgiving other people. It, it comes easy in the sense that I know that I've done way worse things to God, and He's forgiven me than this person will ever do to me, and so of course I'll forgive you, and and so you may have not necessarily seen yourself exposed in this passage, but maybe these aren't your sins. Maybe these aren't your bad habits. Again, these are representative of the kinds of changes that we must make with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so maybe you need to come up with your own list of exchanges. Hey, if this, is, if this, if this list, list fits, wear it, right? You're like, I got my list. I know what I'm working on in 2019. Got it right here in front of me. But maybe some of you need to step away and say, okay, what are the bad habits? What are the sinful habits in my life that I know are grieving to the Holy Spirit? The things I need to put off. And, and, and then what are the things I need to put on in their place? What are the, the godly habits? What's the opposite of that vice? What's the opposite of that? What's the virtue? that with the help of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, I can become that person. 
And I can stop being that and start being this. And so you've heard me talk about a five most wanted list. And uh, this is the time of year I typically revise mine. Those of you guys that I meet with from time to time, you know we've talked about your five most wanted list. What, what are the five biggest sins in your life? If you could ask God to change five things in your life, what would they be? Typically, I hate this about my life. I hate this about my life. I hate this. You know, it's typically the sin in our life, right? So five most wanted lists. And, and let, me, let me try to make this as, as, as simple and practical as possible. And I've written this out on the bottom of your um, application question side of your sheet. Hopefully you have one of these. If you don't, you can grab one on the way out because I think this is important. Six steps for replacing an old habit with a new habit. Six steps. Number one, discern a bad habit that needs to change. So you just have to say, Lord... Search me, know my heart, show me an area in my life that needs to change. Number two, determine the biblical alternative to it. What is, that, what is it you need to put on in its place? Don't just say, I got to quit doing that. Well, you got to not just quit doing that, you got to start doing the opposite of whatever that is. Number three, develop a deliberate plan to change. In other words, you're going to have to do some things, you're going to have to restructure your life Maybe some activities or some, your surroundings, your associations, or your schedule. Thing, something's going to have to change, right, in order for you to change. So you need to restructure your life for change. So develop a deliberate plan to change. Number four, draw on the strength of others who can help you change. In other words, don't say, I'm just going to grip my teeth and I'm going to just gut this out. I'm going to do it myself. No, you need to take advantage of your spouse your parents, maybe your children, maybe a brother, sister, your pastor, your grow group leader, your elder, a friend, brother or sister in Christ. Say, I, I really need some help to, to stop doing this and, and to put this off and I want to put this off. So in other words, you make yourself accountable. Say, hey, just want you to know, here's my list. And, and would you pray for me uh, about these things? And would you ask me, when we see each other, how I'm doing in those areas. So you draw on the strength of others. Number five, discipline yourself to change. Discipline yourself to change. There's so much in the scriptures to talk about that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness, right? There, there needs to be some self-discipline involved in this process. We need to practice, 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 do something over and over again until it becomes a habit. Right? So there needs to be some discipline and don't get bummed out if, it, if you don't change in a week or two weeks or even a month, right? Stick it out. Practice makes what? Perfect, right? You just keep doing it, doing it, and trust the Lord that you're going to develop that new, that new habit. I don't know if it's true, but I've read somewhere that it takes about three weeks to develop a habit. You can't just expect to wake up one morning and, you know, have it set. It's going to take a while. And then... The most important step here is number six, and that is depend on the grace of God and the power of the Spirit to change you through constant and persistent prayer. Depend on the grace of God and the power of the Spirit to change you through constant and persistent prayer. In other words, take your list, 
your, your five most wanted list, your sin list, uh, your change list, however you want to describe it, your exchange list, and turn it into a prayer list. Keep it in the front of your Bible, and when you have your quiet time, just pull it out and pray through those five things. And, and you could pray through them in 30 seconds, or you could pray through them in 30 minutes. It depends on how much time you have, but I'm sure you could, you know, kind of zip right through that thing really quickly, and Lord, this is, pray for this, this, and this, help me change in this, 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 and this, help me to stop doing this, help me to be this. Or like I said, you could take your whole quiet time, spend an hour praying about those five things in your life. What are we talking about? We're talking about pursuing holiness. We're talking about being holy as God is holy. What does that look like practically? Well, it, it, it just means taking on sin in our lives. Just, just, to, just figuring out what those sins are, those stubborn sins that are hindering our sanctification, if you will, and, and taking them on through something very deliberate, something very intentional, and applying all the resources that we have available to us through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, through the body of Christ, Right? We have the whole, His Holy Word, we have His Holy Spirit, we have His Holy Church. He gave us all these things to help us be holy, like He is holy. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for how practical Paul got in this letter to just be very specific about some common sins that every one of us struggles with and I pray, Lord, that we would be as deliberate, as intentional, as specific uh, in our own lives, Lord, as we consider this new year and consider the areas that we want to grow and change to become more like Christ, Lord, that we wouldn't be passive about our sanctification, but we would be aggressive about it, and, uh, but at the same time, Lord, we would be dependent on your spirit and your grace to help us change and grow to become who you want us to be. And so, Lord, there's some balance out there. There's a sweet spot somewhere there between discipline and dependence, dependent discipline. Lord, would you help us to walk in that this year and that we would see some great growth and greater conformity to Christ for your glory, for your honor, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.